Well, hello everyone, and thanks for joining another episode of Well Said. My guest today is Adam White, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Thank you, Adam, for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so today I want to talk about ju the judicial process and whether or not judicial neutrality is still a goal in America. The recent nomination of confirmation of Justice Kentonji Brown-Jackson once again put America's judicial system at the forefront of political conversation. But we often forget to use these moments as opportunities to review the history and purpose behind Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution, the rule of law in America, and the role judicial power plays in our government. Instead, we focus on the witty or disgraceful one-liners and excerpts spouted by the showmen we call U.S. senators during the confirmation process. And the media, rather than educate the public, contributes instead to the game that is political football. In public conversations, judicial confirmations are often overburdened with concerns about how the nominee may potentially rule on a given issue or what precedents they may attempt to overturn. But by focusing so heavily on these concerns, we take for granted the history of the courts and their purpose. The people must remember the vital importance of not viewing the courts as an extension of their political aims, but as a tempering mechanism to curb our impulses back towards America's core principles. Maybe if the public acknowledged this more and advocated for it more, then we would see fewer judges ruling based on the outcomes they prefer to see over the outcomes they know is right and true to the foundation of this country. It seems that the courts are seen by both conservatives and liberals as this last bastion of hope when it comes to enacting their political desires. And therefore the courts have kind of filled this role, uh, you know, as, as we've often asked them. So Adam, I want to have a more holistic conversations about the sustainability of our judicial system in America, the future of judicial power, how this relates to increasing trends of judicial activism over judicial neutrality and whether politics will ever or should ever stay out of the courts. So let's start with an easy question, but one that's seldom asked, what is the purpose of the US Supreme Court and Article Three of the Constitution? You start with the, uh, the easy questions, right? <laughs> that, 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 right? It's a timeless question. It goes back to the very beginning of our constitutional system. It was one of the founding debates that gave rise to the Constitution. And I just wanna say uh, at the outset, I think one of the key, uh, a great way that you put it in that, in that introduction, uh, one of the key questions is whether we take it for granted. Right? We sort of assume that well, we've had the Supreme Court, we've had the federal judiciary for a couple hundred years. Um, it's hard to imagine a system without it. Um, but we can't take it for granted. Uh, the founders were making a real, uh, a real decision when they created the Supreme Court and gave it the protections and the powers that it has. Um, and every generation has to make a choice of what they want in their Supreme Court. So, I mean, the, like the, the, the schoolhouse rock version of the answer, why do we have a Supreme Court? Uh, well, it's one of the three branches of government, right? Congress is supposed to write the laws, the president executes them, and the courts, uh, it's often said, say what the law is. But it's a little more complicated than that, of course. The Supreme Court's real job is to, to decide what the Constitution calls cases and controversies, right? So the Supreme Court isn't just this free-floating uh, constitutional committee. It's not a faculty lounge. It has an actual job of deciding real cases, mostly uh, arising under federal law. Um, uh, and to the extent that the courts have to interpret the constitution or the laws to decide those cases, well, then they interpret the constitution and the laws. But that's a, an extremely powerful, uh, it's, it's an extremely significant power that the court has. And it's always been co consequential and controversial. Um, the very early Supreme Courts, especially under the leadership of, of Chief Justice John Marshall, had to make real decisions about what the Constitution says explicitly and implicitly for the scope of federal power, 
for the scope of federal judicial power, for the relationship between the Supreme Court and the state courts, and, and, and on and on. So this has been a timeless source of, of controversy. And at the very founding, it was an open question whether judges should have life tenure, how they should be appointed. Um, it, we take for granted now the president nominates and the Senate confirms or doesn't confirm the nomination. But it was an open question about whether that was the right way to appoint judges. In the 200 years that have followed, the Supreme Court has perennially been a, 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 a centrally significant and often controversial part of government, for better and for worse, right? For better, I, you can think of the, the, the Marshall Court, you can think of, um, of Brown versus Board of Education, you can think of any number of, of sort of great landmarks from the Supreme Court. Um, for worse, you think of moments like Dred Scott, where the Supreme Court tried to unilaterally settle the, the pre-Civil War slavery issue by opening up the West uh, to slavery in ways that Congress had long uh, not allowed. Um, the Supreme Court thought it was settling the slavery question once and for all, and instead sort of put us on our final, the nation's final glide path towards the Civil War. And we've seen that at other times where the Supreme Court thought it was settling an issue um, or resettling an issue only to further inflame it. Um, but time and again, the court has had to sort of justify its work uh, to the American people and to history. And sometimes it succeeds and sometimes it fails. Um, okay, yeah, so you kind of went over kind of a broader history. Um, during, the, during the confirmation hearing of Justice Jackson, um, you, you wrote an article um, in the Wall Street Journal and you asked a really important question that I actually don't know if the senators, you, you urged them to ask this during the hearings and I don't know if they actually asked it, but what makes the court legitimate? In our constitutional system? Is it just that it was written in Article 3, or is there more to, to this concept that, that kind of builds it out in society? Yeah, this is something I've been thinking about a lot, um, not just as a lawyer and now as a, as a legal scholar, um, but for the, I spent 2021 serving on a presidential commission on the Supreme Court. Uh, President Biden appointed me uh, to, to the, the presidential commission on the Supreme Court of the United States, which he had created um, in response to to calls on the left uh, to consider what we call packing the court. Um, mm -hmm. So I was, I was one of 36 commissioners um, that studied a number of issues involving the size of the court, efforts to change the court structure, and other questions about judicial process and the appointments process and so on. And throughout my time on the commission, I was sort of puzzled by, often frustrated by the what we what the public was taking for granted about the court's legitimacy widely different conceptions of what makes the supreme court legitimate in our system yeah. and in our political process um and and at the end of the commission's work in december of last year i i released a short statement sort of reiterating my concerns um particularly the concerns about how we conceive of the court's legitimacy so th thanks very much for pointing out this op-ed. I wrote it, um, it, it came out right at the beginning of the confirmation hearings. And yeah, I, I urged the senators to ask the, the nominee, uh, Judge Jackson, uh, how, it, how she understands the court's legitimacy, right? The, Judge Jackson, mm -hmm. like many of her predecessors, Supreme Court nominees, she really perfected this two-step process mm -hmm. where anytime she was asked a question about a, a legal question, She'd say, well, I'm a judge and a judicial nominee. I can't answer that question. When she was asked a non-legal question, like a policy question, she'd say, well, I'm a judge and a judicial nominee. I can't answer a non-legal question. But I think these deeper questions about legitimacy really did fall within 
the kind of questions a right. nominee ought to ask. It informs the nominee's work. Uh, and, and so some of the no senators did ask about this. Senator Sass mm -hmm. in particular asked okay. about whether the Roberts court was illegitimate. And Jackson said, no, the, the Roberts court is not illegitimate. But to finally answer your question after that long stem winder, um, what is it that makes the court actually legitimate? I mean, it's a couple of things and it always has been a couple of things. One is fidelity to the law, to the written law. The whole reason why we give the court so much independence is so that it can decide individual cases of controversies um, without being held politically accountable in the way politicians are. Um, but the only reason we give judges so much independence is because we assume they're bound by law and not just policymakers. Um, so first of all, the judges are, their work is legitimized by, by how they decide cases um, in accordance with written law. But then I think politically, they do need to justify those decisions to the public, right? There's a reason why the Supreme Court's justices write opinions. It's not though they just announce the outcome of cases and then just sort of go home for the summer. They actually have to explain their reasoning. Uh, the public, they don't have to cater to the public, but I think they need to respect the public and explain to the public why they've decided these cases the way they have. Um, Justice Thomas, um, one of my favorites, he talks about how when he goes on these summer vacations on his on his, his RV uh, through the Midwest, where I'm from, uh, he, he talks about meeting people throughout America and talking about Supreme Court opinions um, because he really wants his opinions to be read or understood or understandable by the public. And that's an important part of legitimacy that we shouldn't take for granted, too. And I just say the reason why I'm worried about the legitimacy question is I think there is, a frankly, a campaign to delegitimize the current court. I think its critics are trying to talk down the legitimacy of the court in order to talk up truly radical proposals to pack the court. Um, and so I think we ought to have a national conversation about, about the court's legitimacy. So before we get into more detail about some of the proposed reforms um, that I know you've written extensively about and, and, and had to face those questions when you're on the commission, I do, you brought up Justice Thomas, and I wanted to ask you, um, a lot of the times when I see uh, his dissenting opinions, or more recently, I've seen a couple of dissenting opinions of his that actually, um, on, on issues that we, uh, you know, as a conservative judge, you would think he would actually be in favor of. But the dissenting opinion was less about the issue at hand and more about the precedent and the, the precedent of, of what was being applied um, to justify uh, the, the, the decision in favor of, of whoever. And I guess my concern is, well, first, my question is, what role does precedent play in the legitimacy of the courts? Uh, but secondly, you know, is there an over-reliance on precedent? Because I think Thomas points out something really important here that we might just be carrying forward actually originally bad ideas um, uh, through through this this um, through this kind of loyalty to precedent through in the judicial system. Yeah, uh, I remember when I was in law school, um, I saw a quote from Justice Thomas where he took issue from a precedent with a precedent from the very early years of the Republic. And I can't remember the <laughs> yeah. exact quote, but he basically said, just because we've been doing something wrong yeah. for 200 years doesn't mean we need to keep doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. um, this is very difficult in the judiciary. I mean, Hamilton in his famous Federal 78 said, the court needs to be bound down by a strict body of laws and precedents. Um, but those two things are not always directly in line with one another, right? Sometimes right. a precedent 
we, we later come to understand just clearly misread, misunderstood, misconstrued the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, we're bound by the Constitution, not by precedents. There isn't a simple answer to this. Justice Thomas, I think of all the justices, puts the least weight on precedent. Uh, others put more. And I'm very curious to see what Justice Barrett does, given that she spent her, her entire academic career studying and writing about what it means to have precedent in our system. <laughs> My own instinct at a very broad level of generality is that the courts should be unafraid to, to overturn precedents, but they ought to do it um, uh, slowly and carefully, um, sort of peel back precedent one layer at a time uh, so that they don't, first of all, so they don't destabilize things too much. Um, and also so that they remain aware that they, the justices are as um, susceptible to mistakes as their predecessors. Uh, when it comes to precedent, I'd say intent matters, right? If a precedent wasn't really trying to understand the meaning of the constitution, it's entitled, I think, to less weight. Um, ultimately, we should care about precedents that try to interpret uh, the Constitution. Um, and even if we think they may, might have gotten it wrong, maybe give it the benefit of the doubt until it's clearly unsustainable. At AEI, we had an event a couple of weeks ago regarding Justice Alito's jurisprudence. And I was trying to, to think out loud about how he approaches precedent. Um, and what I, what I sort of blurted out was it's important to, res to respect precedent Mm -hmm. while not necessarily um, respecting every precedent, right? That we ought, to, we ought to give weight to precedent overall while holding sort of lightly to any individual precedent. I don't know if that makes right. sense, but it made sense to me at the time. And I think I'm sticking with no, it. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. It sounds like you're actually defining the concept of wisdom. <laughs> yeah. So which is just like understanding and knowing um, when something we've thought our whole lives might be wrong, but also being very careful on how to approach that and then understanding like the importance of history and how that plays into everything. Um, but I, yeah, yeah, so I, I think it, that, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, I mean, that wisdom is probably uh, too much credit, but, but maybe, um, <laughs> yeah. maybe prudence. Um, although sometimes wisdom comes late and that might be a good way of thinking about overturning pr precedent. Right. Um, but it really is, it's a prudential judgment and, and every right. justice is going to differ a little bit. Um, so I try not to get too categorical. I, I will say, um, I went back in the last year, I was looking at, at writings and speeches from the early Warren court. So in the 1960s, hmm. well, 50s into the 60s, where you had this generational turning point where the court was really moving in a new direction and they understood that they were moving in a new direction, much like I think the current court, the originalist court is now. Hmm. And I was struck... I was struck by a few of the justices. I think it was uh, Justice Gold, um, Goldberg, and maybe Ju Chief Justice Warren himself, like, maybe not, in some interviews where they were sort of asked what the Warren court made of precedent. And they said, well, you know, precedent's kind of overrated. In fact, I think it was Justice Goldberg who said, well, we're, gonna, we're overturning precedents, but our decisions will be entitled to great weight because they'll be rightly decided. Um, and so it's, it's sort sure. of ironic, yeah, right? right. That, the precedents that are now on, you know, being reconsidered are often some of the Warren courts more, uh, I think, sort hmm. of uh, their overreaches, not Brown v. Board of Education, but some of their other decisions. And especially once you get into the early Burger court, you know, the court that really the court that really didn't take precedent too seriously. Well, their precedents aren't necessarily going to be taken too seriously. And, and I don't have a whole lot of regret about that. Yeah, yeah, I no, completely agree. I mean, I, I feel like that's something that every every justice would probably say about their court that, you know, we're, we're doing the right, we're on the right side of history here. <laughs> I'm sure many yeah. of them would claim that. Um, yeah. 
Okay, so before, so I want to talk about the the history of kind of reforms that you've been seeing. So you did you did kind of open that door when we talked about the fifties and sixties, but I want to talk about from the yeah. very beginning. So you've mentioned also under the Jefferson administration, kind of like what this looked like when some things changed with how we understood the role of the courts, um, mm -hmm. but then any reforms that kind of came along with that throughout time and just kind of trace that back to today. And then maybe we can start talking a little about the, the proposals today, um, well, what's the, with, with regard to reforms. Yeah, the court's structure isn't written in the constitution. It's not written in stone. Uh, we we kind of take for granted maybe that there's nine, until recently we took for granted that there's nine justices. Mm -hmm. um, the original Supreme Court um, I mean, the, the Constitution creates a Supreme Court, but at least to Congress, a lot of discretion in structuring the court. And the first Congress said that the Supreme Court would have six justices. Uh, in fact, they set it up so that there'd be two from each region, two from New England, two from the Mid-Atlantic, two from the South. And that was important because originally the justices, they most of their work really was back home in, in the circuits deciding <clears throat> cases. So you had six justices, it grew over time. At, at its largest, it was 10. Um, during the Civil War, the Lincoln administration added a 10th justice for the newly created states of California and Oregon. Um, some thought that that was Lincoln. I mean, I saw this during the court commission most recently. Some people read that as Lincoln trying to pack the court with another you know, pro-union justice. I don't see it in those terms, but I'm sure these things are always complicated. Mm -hmm. But also from the very start, you had people really explicitly tactically trying to change the structure of the court. Uh, the Adams administration added a lot of judges um, to the lower courts at the end of President Adams' first term. They changed the, stru the structure of the lower courts. Jefferson comes in and changes all of it. And at the same time, the Jeffersonians wanted to impeach at least one uh, Federalist justice. Okay. Those moments have arisen over time. You saw uh, most famously, infamously, uh, the Roosevelt administration, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, outraged over the Supreme Court's unwillingness to, to sort of expand the Constitution to accommodate the New Deal, uh, threatened to what they called pack the court, add justices um, pretty explicitly to change the, 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 the substance of the court's decisions. Uh, that spurred total, um, what's the right word? I mean, people really recoiled in horror from what uh, Roosevelt was trying to do. His right. own party declined to do this. So since the 1930s, court packing was an anathema. You'd see mm -hmm. from time to time calls to impeach justices. You saw the John Birch Society in the 1960s wanting to impeach Chief Justice Earl Warren. Um, you, you see those moments over time. But in the last few years, just the last very few years, you've seen calls from the political left to pack the court, they now call it expand the court um, for better messaging, I suppose. But yeah. they say pack, you know, pack or expand the court, um, add justices because they think the Roberts Court, as in the words of Elizabeth Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, is presumptively illegitimate, um, and and so they, they there are calls to change the appointments process, put term limits on justices, uh, pack the mm -hmm. court with additional justices, and 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 some other proposed reforms. I, I always want to put an asterisk next to reform. I think reform is a little gentle way of putting what they're doing here, but, um, <laughs> yeah. but uh, I'll just say there are reforms. Yeah, completely changing the court. The, the <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, okay. And this came up, this will, yeah, this, and this yeah. really came up, um, obviously, when the Republicans in 2016 gave Merrick Garland's nomination the silent treatment, 
Hmm. Obviously, that was a that was a politically aggressive move and and really did stir up a lot of controversy. But the talk about court packing didn't really come until later, as far as I, I can tell. And I was rereading a lot of this history, recent history, while I was on the court commission. Um, even after Justice Gorsuch was appointed for the spot that Gar Garland didn't get, there wasn't mm -hmm. much talk of court packing. Um, it really began after Justice Kennedy announced his retirement and he was replaced by Justice Kavanaugh. Even before the, the controversy over Justice uh, Ginsburg's untimely passing and, and her um, very quick um, succession by, by, um, by Justice Barrett, the court packing talk started somewhere in the middle. When Justice Kennedy stepped down, Kavanaugh joined the court and it became, I think, very clear that we were seeing a generational turn of the court's um, personnel towards an originalist judiciary. And I think that's when you saw the court packing talk come up. Okay, so a couple questions on court packing um, or sure. court expansion as the Democrats like to call it. <clears throat> um, so one, what are the reasons they are giving for, for expanding the court or, or court packing? Because we, we can kind of assume what they are. We can assume and we kind of know what they are, which is obviously they want to influence judicial decision-making by putting more um, friendly justices on the Supreme Court bench. But what's I'm curious, I mean, they're obviously not saying that out loud. So what is the reasoning, the justification they're giving for that? Um, but also like, what would it take? Um, just, just to inform listeners, like what would it take to actually expand the court? Sure. Well, what it would take would be an act of Congress because again, right. the constitution isn't written, the, the constitution doesn't prescribe the size of the court. So uh, Congress could pass a law adding justices. I, there are some constitutional arguments that doing that in these circumstances or for these reasons would be unconstitutional. I'm not totally mm -hmm. convinced by that. I, I think Congress probably could do this with a simple act of Congress. Uh, what are the reasons given for packing the court now? There's a few. Um, one is just, I mean, political, and this is probably gets the least oxygen in the debate, but, but there is some of it. And I think it's, it undergirds a lot of this is, is just simple political warfare. Democrats mm. think that Republicans really crossed the line and broke a norm um, in not giving Justice Garland a vote, um, that they exacerbated that problem when they then turned around during an election, the next election cycle and immediately confirmed Barrett um, where they hadn't acted on, on Garland's nomination. Um, that's a big part of it. Now, for what it's worth, my first law review article in 2004, 2005, a long time ago, was about why the Senate did not have to vote on judicial nominations. And this was during the Bush years when Democrats were stonewalling some nominations. Hmm. Um, so, but, but people, a lot of Democrats thought that Republicans blew open the process when they, when they gave Garland the silent treatment and that there needs to be some kind of political retribution or that, so that's, that's one. Some more is one, there's criticism of the Roberts Court's jurisprudence. Um, specific cases, I see the Shelby County case brought up a lot um, as sort of the centerpiece of an argument that the Roberts Court is anti-democratic and is entrenching political minorities, uh, sort of conservative political coalitions um, as politically powerful majorities, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that the Roberts Court is going to entrench a political minority in power. Um, there's just broader criticisms of the Roberts Court's jurisprudence, right? That they're going to roll back abortion rights. They're going to roll back Roe v. Wade and that that requires a new court. Um, there are some arguments that the court right now just simply isn't demographically representative of the, of, of the nation or that it's not representative of the public's ideas um, and that that requires additional justices. What I don't see a whole lot of argument is that 
is, is that expanding the court would actually make the court function better as a court. Uh, and that was one of my main themes as a, as a commissioner, was that again, the court is there to decide specific cases, right? Um, according to laws that the court, court generally does not write itself. Um, <clears throat> and that um, adding justices is not actually gonna make the court function better as a court. It will make it act more and more like a legislature. There's sure. nothing magical about the number nine justices. The court probably could have functioned well as a seven justice court. It could probably function well as, a, as an 11 justice court. Um, but I've not seen a whole lot of argument to that effect. Um, and, and, and in fact, when, when Supreme Court practitioners um, submitted comments to the commission, they were very, very skeptical that expanding the court would actually improve it. I, I have to say, I, I've always thought that there was something to be said early on um, in the court, nation's history about having an even number of justices. It, it, was interesting it actually too. builds yeah. in like a very small supermajority sort yeah. of requirement in the court's work. Um, so if, and, and I sort of would joke within the commission, I said, well, maybe an even number of justices would be a good idea. And I think people assumed I meant 10, you know, add a justice. And then I'd say, <laughs> I'd say so let's just not replace the next vacancy. Let's yeah. go to eight. And I, that, that was not very popular. But, yeah, I was going to say um, they anyway. probably rolled their eyes at that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so uh, another another type of reform that has been proposed is term limits. Um, obviously, to be a Supreme Court justice is something that they don't necessarily retire from on any kind of standard year or standard age. They just kind of upon themselves say that they're going to retire and it's time and it is for life otherwise. Um, yeah. So they could even die on the bench and that that's something that has happened in the past. So I'm curious what your thoughts are um, kind of on, on term limits. Again, what are the arguments that are being proposed? Has this been something that we've discussed historically in the past and, and uh, yeah, where we're at right now? Again, one of the founding debates was about whether the judges should have life tenure or not. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's, so it's, it's a, it was a fair question at the founding. Um, I came to the commission sort of inclined towards judicial term limits for a few reasons. Uh, one is that uh, the justices and the lower court judges, uh, they live a lot longer. I mean, a, I mean we're, we're lucky now to live in a time when life expectancies are to you know, 80 or 90 rather than 60. Um, but it means that now when you appoint a judge with life tenure, you're, you, it's a question of who you're going to appoint for 30 or, or more years. And mm -hmm. that really does change the politics around judicial appointments. Um, it also, I think, probably changes the way the judges approach their own jobs, probably both for better and for worse. Um, mm -hmm. Furthermore, in the early founding, the justices, judges often left the bench after a few years to go do other things, right? I guess Chief Justice John Jay left to run for governor of New York, or uh, I think one, you know, there's at least one example of an early justice leaving to go serve on a state Supreme Court, if I remember correctly. Um, uh, so it just wasn't quite the same expectations. Yeah. Um, and, and also, I think there's a real problem um, with, with uh, justices timing their retirements to line up with, mm -hmm. uh, with political pre particular presidencies. Um, I understand why they do it. And frankly, I'm often grateful that they do it that way because I like to see originalist justices replaced with originalist justices. Um, and since the parties have polarized over judicial methodology, a judge wanting his replacement to be like him or her is gonna line up often with a political coalition. Mm -hmm. um, but, but it's a bad look. Uh, and it's, I think it does 
reinforce the perception that the judges are aligned with political parties. Um, so that's why I was inclined towards term limits. But the more that the commission deliberated on it, researched it, heard testimony on the subject, the less and less I liked the idea for a couple of reasons. One is you don't want a justice, even if he, he or she is serving for 18 years, you don't want them thinking about what their next job is going to be. Um, and it's not just because they might go lobby or whatever, um, but you know, they might, it creates incentives for judges to become celebrities um, uh, while they're on the bench uh, so that they have more career options afterwards. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I just think opening up I that Pandora's that. box yeah. is dangerous. Yeah. yeah. There, there's another reason that I didn't like the term limits. And stop me if I go on a bit long because this one gets a little complicated, but it's important. No, I think this is really interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good. Well, you and maybe three other listeners. But, um, <laughs> but, but so the, the basic suggestion was Give each justice an 18-year term. That means with nine, assuming we keep nine justices on the court, we you'd have a new vacancy every two years. Um, and implicit in that with that proposal with that proposal is that every presidential term ought to have the same number of vacancies on the Supreme Court. Mm. Right? The idea that it's unfair that say President Trump gets three Supreme Court justices appointed. Um, president in four years, President Obama only got two in eight years. Poor Jimmy Carter got zero in four years. Um, there's this sense that that's unfair. And I guess I, I understand it, but I also think I understand that that's a bad instinct to think right. that, as I, as I put it in one um, commission hearing, we assume that Supreme Court seats are like uh, Oval Office couches and two new ones are delivered to the Oval Office after every <laughs> inauguration. Um, they're not the property of the presidency. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't just identify Supreme Court appointments with the president. These people are right. appointed by the president and the Senate, and that, that matters. But then yeah. the, the greater problem becomes, um, if you have a vacancy every two years, there's this expectation that the Senate would have to go along with filling the vacancies, right? Mm -hmm. That it would be unfair for the, the Senate to reject too many nominations. And I, I, I just... I. I don't agree with that. The Senate has an important role to play. They're not obligated to just sign off on every nomination. And so any system that would require the Senate to act on judicial nominations, I'm just very, very wary of. Right, right. Yeah, and throughout a lot of these reforms, you've brought up, um, you've brought up topics that kind of allude to something that I've been thinking a lot about, which is judicial activism. And what I mentioned at the beginning is this concept of judicial neutrality. Um, and so we're looking at how judges, whether the people kind of see the judicial system as an extension of their political aims or the judges themselves see um, the rulings that they make as an extension of what they want politically for the country. Um, so that is something that is obviously of great concern. It certainly challenges the legitimacy of the court, um, but I'm curious what your thoughts are and kind of a little bit again on the history of like judicial activism in the United States and, and if this is a trend that we're going to see that's going to keep going um, in the wrong direction. Well, you know, early on in, in our conversation, you, you referred back to the, con the confirmation hearings and the fact that the senators just pelt the nominees with all <laughs> these questions about policy and, and so on. And yeah, it's not, that's, not, that's not ideal to say the least. Um, but, but Scalia warned us about this a long time ago uh, in his dissent in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, right on the heels of the Thomas confirmation and the Bork hearings and just that first five year period 
when the confirmation hearings blew up into a much <laughs> bigger political spectacle. Right. Scalia in his Casey dissent, he says a lot of things, but on this point in particular, he says, you know, to those who worry that the Supreme Court's confirmation hearings are getting uglier and more divisive and political, the court needs to understand that it's creating these problems and that the more that the Supreme Court takes policy disputes and turns them into constitutional disputes um, in things like the 14th Amendment, right? Uh, Casey, of course, was about abortion, but the more and more that policy disputes that aren't really mapping onto explicit enumerated constitutional rights get constitutionalized through the 14th Amendment, um, mm. the more that the American people will push back. He said, the American people, they love democracy and they're not fools. And to the extent that the Supreme Court's decisions are just political value judgments, the people want their voices heard through the confirmation process. So it's the court's own move towards activism over recent decades that helped to inflame the confirmation process. And so we're right to worry that the court's activism over the years, and I define activism as, as uh, deciding policy issues as constitutional issues without a real textual hook in the constitution. Um, that that activism is gonna degrade the public's respect for the court and the appointments process. Yeah, and then so then how does restraint play into all of this? Um, are we seeing, um, I mean, you've mentioned a lot of challenges to, to the Roberts court um, with it being too, being accused of being too restrained, too originalism, uh, to focus on originalism. Um, obviously Scalia's kind of in my mind, the father of originalism um, and the way that we talk about it today. Um, I'm kind of curious what the role is and uh, what the role of originalism is on, on the courts today, if you see that expanding in the future, but also just how that plays with like judicial restraint. And if you see that as an increasing trend or if you see us kind of pulling further and further away from judicial restraint. Yeah, now to be fair, some of the Roberts Court's mm -hmm. critics would say that, that originalism isn't neutral, right? That mm -hmm. it's actually just a rhetoric that covers up the, 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 the political preferences of the justices themselves. I, I disagree with that criticism. I think it's important though for the justices to make clear that when they are deciding their cases, they're deciding them as a matter of, of constitutional text and, and, and in a good faith way. Um, but but uh, some, some critics would just reject the premise of, of what I'm about to say, right? But, but <laughs> right. as I see it, as I see it, the, the Supreme Court's moving in a generate, making a generational move in an originalist direction. And that that's a good mm -hmm. thing, uh, that it's good that the justices uh, are deciding cases based on constitutional text. Now, even with six originalists on the justices you, and six textualists, you still get very significant disagreement and that's a good thing. Um, I think that as an originalist, it's important for me to, to be modest in, in, in what I think uh, the originalist outcome is in individual mm -hmm. cases. Um, it doesn't mean you shouldn't try to be an originalist. It's just to understand that sometimes the court might get it wrong and that it's good for there to be disagreements among originalists. Um, but the court is moving in that direction, and I hope that it helps to bring down the political temperature around the court. The more that the court decides cases in originalist terms, hopefully they get away from the, the problem that Scalia identified. But of course, we'll see, especially in the short term, uh, progressive critics uh, blasting away at originalist decisions saying that they are simply political. So when the court, if the court, I mean, the, the big the big issue, it always has been for the last 50 years, uh, the, the abortion cases. Uh, if the Supreme Court decides 
in the Dobbs case coming out of Mississippi, that the Mississippi's latest restrictions on abortion uh, do not violate the Constitution, um, the, the Constitution's text. Of course, that's going to be a politically explosive decision. Um, mm -hmm. It's one. It's a decision that I, I, for what it's worth, I hope the court reaches. Um, but it's incumbent upon the court to really explain what the Constitution's text does and doesn't say, and what that means. Uh, and hopefully, over time, uh, I mean, we've seen in the last, especially the last twenty-five years, textualism, originalism, I think, have won the political fight. You now see even progressives often trying to justify their their own positions in originalist terms. And so I like the long-term trend line here, but there's mm -hmm. still a lot of work to be done. I think it would be a mistake for conservatives to sort of spike the football and say, uh, we've won, originalism is, mm -hmm. is the mode of constitutional interpretation because they have to continue to win that argument substantively right. and rhetorically. Um, but also I'd say, um, I do worry a little bit about uh, too much confidence in what originalism can and should achieve. And what I mean is <laughs> I, I get wary of uh, my more libertarian friends, uh, and I have a lot of them and I, I like them a lot, but, but, but I, I worry about my more libertarian friends wanting to achieve more and more through the 14th Amendment and the Fifth Amendment. It's broad, it's broad statements yeah. of, of liberty. Um, you know, I, I just worry about pushing too far. At the end of the day, I'm a textualist, but I'm also in favor of judicial right. restraint. And I think these two things are deeply intertwined. Again, I, I mentioned Hamilton's famous Federalist 78. When you read past its more famous lines into its substance, he wanted judicial restraint, in turn, at least in the context of the court giving the benefit of the doubt to the legislative branch, to Congress, at least right. until there was a clear constitutional mistake by Congress. Yeah, yeah, and just to to kind of clarify, I know we've been talking a lot about originalism, and I kind of just like started asking questions about it before we properly defined it for our listeners. Yeah. Could you quickly just define originalism and textualism, and and kind of um, give a little bit of background on that? Sure, originalism, as I understand it, is is interpreting the Constitution in accordance with the meaning that the words of the Constitution had when that provision was written, whether it was mm -hmm. the original Constitution, whether it was the Fourteenth Amendment, or any other amendment interpreting the Constitution now in accordance with what its words meant when they were written and ratified. Um, related to that, if you expand it a bit more, textualism is a similar approach, but to all written law, so including statutes and, and so on. Originalism, really, I think it was there from the beginning, but its modern rebirth really comes about uh, in the 70s going into the 80s, thanks to folks like Justice Scalia and others and Justice Thomas a little later. Originally, uh, its, its exponents, its advocates uh, spoke in terms of the original intent of the founders. And by the way, this really, I said the 70s into the, into the 80s, this was right around the time of the bicentennial of, of our Declaration of Independence, going into the bicentennial of the Constitution, when you had this really rebirth of appreciation for the founders and for their ideas. And so originalism started with an eye to the, the ideas and the intentions of the founders, but as a legal methodology, it very quickly became refined into caring about what the founders' words meant, the words of the Constitution. So that's how I understand originalism. Yeah, and that is, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. And like we could even do an entire podcast on originalism and the history of it in America, um, just because there are different interpretations of what it is. It has evolved a little bit over time, um, but it is super fundamental, obviously, to, to the uh, judicial process today. Um, yeah. And... Uh, 
So, so I kind of want to touch a little bit on, we've talked a lot about, uh, you know, judicial, the importance of objectivism and neutrality. Um, and I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on the justices themselves. Do you think there's kind of just a general, do you think there is an understanding and an acknowledgement on their parts that how the, of the importance of this for the legitimacy of the court? Is there an effort, a concerted effort on their parts to, to maintain objectivity and neutrality? Yes, I think so. I, th I think all nine justices would agree with that statement. Um, they would disagree in how they'd go about trying to achieve <laughs> that neutrality. Um, but I think they'd all agree with it. And you, you see a number of justices um, in recent years. We've seen Thomas, Barrett, Roberts, Breyer. Uh, Breyer has a new has a book out in the last year that I reviewed for one of the newspapers, I think the Wall Street Journal. Uh, or no, uh, scratch that. Uh, it's probably in Commentary Magazine. Um, <laughs> reviewing Breyer's late, yeah, it was in Commentary Magazine. Uh, reviewing Breyer's last book. A lot of efforts to um, to, to defend the court's perception, it's, neutra it's neutrality. Um, but they have real headwinds, um, on, especially yeah. on the left, but also on the right among, uh, I think, some who want the court to do too much. At the same time, we have really interesting debates among conservative legal thinkers about the Constitution. Adrian Vermeule has his new book out on what he calls common good constitutionalism, which envisions a much greater role for all parts of government, but including the Supreme Court to sort of affirmatively pursue notions of the common good that aren't necessarily spelled out specifically in the constitution. Uh, before him, you had uh, libertarians sort of arguing for a broader role of the court. You've had uh, my, my friend Hadley Arcus, uh, a great constitutional thinker himself, long, for a long time urging the court to, to do much more in service of natural law. Um, I disagree with all these folks at some level, but I agree with them that it's that you do have to understand the Constitution, you do have to have a sense of the principles that were yeah. protected by the Constitution. Justice Thomas had a great line once in a Law Review article before he was a justice. He said, this isn't a choice between good intentions and good institutions, between principles and institutions. It's, it's about the institutions that embody good principles. And that's what our institutions were created to do. So you do have to understand a little bit of what the founders' actual intentions were. At the end of the day, I think the right answer is that the, they were, the founders were, were Republicans, lowercase r Republicans. Um, they, were, they were Republicans in the sense of how they understood their institutions, how they understood the duty of office holders, the duty of citizens, um, mm -hmm. and what our government was created to achieve. Um, and that, that in itself is a longer podcast, I suppose. But I, I think you have to, I think each of the judges and justices comes to the court with a sense of what kind of country are we? What were our institutions created to do? Uh, and, and they read the constitution through those lenses. Yeah, and then I guess my other concern is when we're thinking about the legitimization of the court or the delegitimization of the courts, um, whether or not it's on the rise through the eyes of the people, because we keep coming back to this kind of, like you mentioned, with Thomas feeling the need to um, have the people read his his comments because and his opinions because of how how much he he or how important he deemed it as um, that the people recognize what exactly the role of the courts are um, and and how kind of how their opinions come to be. Um, just and my guess is all of that is because of what will happen is a lot of the people I think today, especially when you're looking at protesters outside of these hearings they do think a lot of the times, or they do at least imply 
that the role of Supreme Court justices is to rule on based on a political issue, based on like where the tr the political trends of the country are, and that they should be saying, hey, you know, this is where the country is today, and you know what, that policy is good to go. And I think a lot of folks do think that's kind of the role of the courts, whether that's because it's evidenced itself and other decisions that have been made, um, or whether it's because the people are kind of slowly altering their their interpretation uh, or understanding of the courts, whether it be based on delegitimization or whether it be based on just kind of what the people now want from the courts. So I'm curious what your thoughts on all that. I know I just gave you a lot to unpack, but we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up with whatever, whatever your answer is and kind of your final uh, thoughts as well. Well, I, I'd say the people have been educated, the American people have been educated now for two or more generations to have exactly that view of the Supreme Court, that it's a policy-making body, that it's often a partisan body. Uh, you see this in not just how things are taught in school, but you see it in, in the, 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 the speeches of politicians. You see it in, often in journalism covering the court. You see it sort of we've, in, in all aspects of our political rhetoric, our political discourse. We've come to see the, the court too often as a, as a political and policy-making body. Um, and of course, a lot of that comes down to the justices themselves who treated their offices that way over the years. Um, of course, the court has, important, has an important job to do, right? Uh, we, yeah. As a former board member of Speech First, I know this very, very well, <laughs> right? That we need the Supreme right. Court to be a bulwark of, mm -hmm. uh, of our actual constitutional rights. Um, that's, that's important. And we need the court to have legitimacy to do those things. Right. Uh, but that necessarily means avoided, avoiding uh weighing into policy disputes when it isn't a real constitutional or legal question um so that's uh, I, I guess that's a long way of saying the court and all of us created all of america helped to create this mess which means it's, it's gonna be hard <laughs> to get out of it right how to actually get the american people to um to re-understand the supreme court in its original spirit frankly for as ugly as the confirmation hearings are um, i'm still a big fan of them because Amid all of the, the the ugliness and often the really the really really ugly accusations and the rhetoric yeah. we've seen that too often in recent years, um, they're still an amazing thing because whether it's in a presidential election cycle, uh, in the middle of of a financial crisis, uh, in the mm -hmm. middle of like the the geopolitical situation we see in 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 Europe right now, um, the American people the political process by and large pauses, at least for a week of confirmation hearings. And amid all the ugly questions, you get really interesting questions and, and, mm -hmm. and statements from the nominee and from others about the court and the constitution. And I mm -hmm. frankly think that the confirmation hearings for the last 30 years have time and time again created an opportunity for originalists to really defend their view of the constitution and their view of the role of the court. And I think it's I think it's prevailing over time. I think, again, the success of originalism uh, really owes a lot to not just the work of the court, but the confirmation hearings. And oh, so I'm, a, I'm as, sure. a, as, a, as with everything, I'm a long-term optimist. I, I think that <laughs> things are headed in a good direction, but we're at a very, very precarious moment where at least for a brief moment in time, a significant political coalition um, saw a, an opportunity to talk about packing the court, which again was anathema yeah. for the last nearly a century, and for good reason. So I hope we can uh, we can we've avoided that that dangerous dangerous moment, 
um, mm -hmm. and that we, we can move forward in a much more constructive way. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful note to, to leave us on, on a note of optimism, which I'm always also in favor for as well. Um, I think you and I both have a lot of faith in the American people and their ability to discern what is good and right for this country. Um, and, you know, it may seem like at times that the fight is never going to end or that it's only getting worse. Um, but I, I do think that there there is a lot of self-correction here. And I do think, like you mentioned, that's a that's a fantastic point. I hadn't thought about that at all um, with, with the, the role of the hearings reminding the American public that, hey, this is something that's really important to this country. You should look into it um, a little bit more and kind of asking those tough questions. So that's a great point. Um, well, thank you so much for Adam, or Adam for joining uh, this episode of Well Said. It was great having you on. Um, everyone, this is Well Said, a bi-weekly live show where I interview policy experts, commentators, academics, students, and activists on issues such as higher education, free speech, and related topics in American culture and policy. You can share this episode on Facebook or YouTube. You can also find it on our website, speechfirst.org, and you can find the podcast version on Apple, Spotify, Anchor, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to download it and listen to it, share it, give us a five-star rating if you like what you heard today. I'm Sharice Trump, and Adam, that was Well Said. Thank you.